raise your hand if you agree with this statement, if this is true for you. I would love for God to bless me with more money. If that's true for you, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay? A couple of you are liars. Uh, if it just comes down to more or less, like if it's just that simple, I will take more, right? Like that's, that's a pretty easy one. If, if my choice is more money or less money, um, okay, more. That's easy. Uh, okay, so if you had the choice between being rich or being not rich, how many of you would choose to be rich? I would choose rich if it was just that simple, like if I could choose to have a whole bunch of money or not a whole bunch of money, I'd choose to have a whole bunch if it was just, if it was just that easy, rich or not. So uh, maybe you've had this thought, maybe I'm just weird and I live in my own fantasy land, but have you ever thought about what it would be like to be rich? Surely you have, right? Like thought about some of the things that, that you would do if you were just legitimately rich. Uh, I've thought sometimes, not just about things that I would do for myself, but I've also thought about things that I would do for other people. Have you ever thought of like a really just kind, generous, charitable thing that you would do if you were rich? Like if you had excessive means, you would, you would do this kind, charitable thing for someone else. Like if I was rich, I would totally buy Pastor Rick a new truck. Now he has one that works perfectly well. In fact, I rode to church today in it, and, uh, and it did the job nicely. Here I am. Uh, but I know that Pastor Rick appreciates good things, and he's grateful for good things. So if I was rich, I would just love to buy my, new, my friend a new truck. I would do that for you, brother. Um, and I would make it just a little less cool than the new truck I bought for myself. Uh, but like, uh, we have, there's a single mom who lives next door to us, and she has two girls that are in elementary school. And, and she's doing great. Like She has a decent job. She's doing a great job of providing for her kids. But hey, college is expensive, especially if you send two of them off like, within a year of each other. If I was rich, I would totally help my neighbor, Michelle, send her girls. That's, I would totally do that. For sure, no questions asked. So can you think, just, in your, just rhetorically in your mind, you're probably thinking of something that you would do or someone that you would bless if you, if you were rich. I think if you were rich, you'd be a good rich person. You'd do good things with the money. I, I believe that about all of you. Well, most of you. Most of you, I think, would do good things with the money, do some nice things. Well, here's the thing. The Bible has some things to say to, to rich people. In fact, um, sometimes we kind of boil it all down to like the idea of tithing. That's what the Bible says about money. But actually, somewhere in the neighborhood of about a tenth, one-tenth of the Bible can be applied directly to the principle of money in our lives. And the idea, the subject matter of money is so much bigger than just the idea of tithing, giving away this percentage to the church or to God. Uh, the Bible has way more to say about it. And so I thought it would be good for you to know just in case you ever become a rich person. Just preventatively, be good to know what the Bible says about wealth because wealth has what a guy named Andy Stanley calls side effects. Rich people do some weird stuff. Uh, like Michael Jackson sleeping in a cryo chamber, hello. Rich people do some weird things. Uh, having wealth will do some odd things and so I thought maybe just being aware of what the Bible says might help you avoid some of those side effects. One of them, for example, is Denial. Rich people live in denial. Denial about being rich. Uh, people don't like to just go around saying, hey, I'm, I'm rich, which is kind of funny because like a really tall person, like my friend Mark is tall, he'll gladly acknowledge that he's tall. And you know, you didn't need him to acknowledge it, but he will. Uh, tall people will tell you they're tall. Short people will tell you they're short. People person, a people person like Nikki here will gladly tell you that she's a people person. You probably didn't need her to tell you that because she's very friendly. Uh, but people person will say, hey, I'm a people person. An introvert will freely admit that they're not a people person. Or how about like 
ultra-organized people, they will very gladly tell you that they are ultra-organized. Disorganized people don't like to talk about it, but they'll own it because it's obvious. Right? Disorganized people will tell you. People, people will admit and own almost anything about themselves except being rich. People don't like to wear that label. Uh, maybe with the exception of our president and some of his friends, they'll tell you they're rich. But most people that are rich won't, won't tell you that they're rich. And it's because we have this, we have this attitude about the idea of wealth. And uh, Gallup, uh, the Gallup Research Group, who Pastor Rick made reference to last week, they actually did some research recently about our attitude as a society towards wealth, how we think about the idea of being rich. And so they asked this question. This was their polling question. The question was, how much money per year would you need to make in order to consider yourself rich? Now, I'm not going to ask you to respond to this because um, earlier this morning I asked the band this question, and it seems like a pretty simple question, but one particular person had a really hard time responding with the number. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you, but in your mind, just think of a number. How much money would you need to make per year in order to consider yourself a rich person? I'm rich. And this was the question that they asked. So, so how much would that be for you? And what they found was that right at 30% of the people they polled, uh, which is a large sample, it's representative of our culture in general, right at 30% of the respondents said a number, some number that was less than $100,000 per year. So it could have been 60, it could have been 40, but, but right at 30% of them said $99,999 or less per year in order to consider themselves rich. So that was at one side of the pendulum. And on the other side, about 15% of the respondents, about 15% of our population said they would have to earn $1 million or more per year in order to consider themselves rich. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. Revealed kind of our attitude. Uh, definitely we're all over the board because there's a big difference between those two numbers. So here's where it really gets interesting, though. Uh, what they found was that in households making less than $50,000 a year, which, by the way, is just about the national average. Uh, national average is just above that. Uh, in households le making less than $50,000 per year, that group of people said, on average, that they would need to earn $100,000 per year in order to be rich. All right? Tracking. I know. It's a lot of numbers. So if you made $50,000 or less in your household per year, you said you needed $100,000 in order to be rich. In households earning fifty dollars to 75000 they said, on average, that they needed $200,000 to be In households earning above 75000 they said that they needed, on average, $250,000 per year to be rich. Do you see, like, where this trend is going? The more you make, the more you felt like you needed in order to consider yourself rich. So then I read this really, uh, this, this report that's completely at, like, the far extreme of wealth. Uh, there's a research group called the Spectrum Group, and they specifically do financial research. And they polled a sample of people who have a net worth, they called them ultra-high net worth professionals. Uh, so, you know, like us. They were worth... Oh, you didn't laugh. Like, maybe you actually are there. I, that was laughable for me. But uh, this group of people has a net worth between $5 million and $25 million. So net worth basically means they have that much in cash or something they can easily turn into cash, like stocks, they could sell it, or property, something like that. Uh, so they have $5 million to $25 million. And what they found was that of that group of people, one out of five of them were worried that they wouldn't have enough money to retire, that their money wouldn't last through retirement. 
they had five to $25 million, and they were concerned that they, they wouldn't live. I would like to know if that group of people considers themselves rich, because uh, apparently some of them don't. Now, for somebody in my position, worth just slightly less than five to $25 million, uh, I might find it laughable that somebody who's worth $25 million would be concerned that they they couldn't retire and have a decent standard of living. Like, I might find that laughable, but if you're worth that amount of money, maybe you're like, yeah, I kind of get it. Like, that, that, makes, that makes sense to me. It seems to me that somebody who's worth five to $25 million from where I sit and is concerned that they don't have enough, it seems to me like they might be in denial about being rich. It just, it seems to me from my seat, right? But it's clearly, it's relative. Apparently, nobody's rich. We all just know somebody who has more than us that is rich, but none of us are actually rich. So, so we probably need to change the criteria. So what if we just said, it depends on where you're at in terms of uh, what percentage of household incomes you're in. So like the one percenters, right? The wealthiest one percent of people. Surely they consider themselves to be rich. I mean, in our context, we tend to talk kind of negatively about that group because there has been some really high-profile greed over the years, right? We all remember, like, the whole mortgage crisis thing, and there was a bunch of high-profile billionaires who got in trouble with that, and, of course, Enron, you know, things like that. So the one percenters kind of get a negative, uh, a negative rap, but, but who is the one percent? Because it can't be just Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg. And, uh, you know, there's got, there's got to be more than just that. Um, so I actually, I looked it up. There's several organizations that do research on it. Did you know that if you make $32,000 per year, you are a one percenter? Congratulations on all your success. You smell phenomenal. You're a one percenter if you make $32,000 a year or less. Now, to some people, that's a ton of money. To some people, that doesn't sound like a lot. Totally relative. So let's just say you had an $11 per hour job, uh, which I believe is minimum wage in the state of Washington. Uh, if you had a full-time $11 per hour job, did you know that you would still be in the top 3% of wage earners worldwide? So if you make $32,000 a year, congratulations, I wrote, I wrote the number down. You are the 61,909,966th richest person on planet Earth if you make $32,000 per year. Celebrate that. You are so loaded. Woo! Yeah, why is that no big deal? Nobody feels like celebrating when I realize that, oh, I, have a, I make $11 an hour and I'm in the top 3%. Nobody's... Nobody's getting excited about that. Why is it? Because we don't consider ourselves rich. We live, we live in denial about it. It doesn't sound like a lot of money to us. We don't consider ourselves as being rich. And that's one of the side effects of being in a society where we have a lot. We don't consider it a lot. Second side effect that rich people deal with, and this might, uh, this might surprise you, but probably not, rich people struggle with discontentment. It's one of the side effects of having a lot, of having affluence. And again, I'm just warning you in case you ever become rich, this is, this is the other guy. This is none of us, but see if you can finish this saying for me. The more you have, the more you... Okay, uh, we didn't have unanimous agreement, but I heard a lot of wants, and that's what I was fishing for. The more you have, the more you want. It's, it's a true statement. I think probably most of us have observed this. Rich people do some strange things. Um, I've heard that rich people have houses for their car. Like, they drive up, and they just, the door goes up, they drive their car in there, and park. their car has its own house. And sometimes, rich people even have more than one car house, so they can have a place to put their car, and then they have other car houses where they can just store a bunch of stuff that they'll never use. 
Rich people do crazy things. They will, they will stand in front of a fully loaded refrigerator and say, we don't have anything to eat. Or they'll stand in front of a full closet where there's work clothes and workout clothes and after work clothes and all kinds of working clothes. And they'll say, I don't have anything to wear. I know, no, nobody did that this morning. No one here did that this morning. Rich people will do all kinds of things. It's absurd, but, but it's true. And I'm just warning you, in case you ever become rich, that your appetite for possessions is going to grow, it's going to grow, and it's going to grow without, without ever ending, even up to the point where you get so much stuff, such an absurd amount of stuff, that you have to go out to your full car house and open the door and drag some of your inventory out into your driveway and sell it for pennies on the dollar to passers-by. That's how much your appetite for stuff will grow, the more you have. And even when you get to the point of uh, acquiring so much stuff, you get bigger and better stuff, it will come complete with bigger and better expenses. That's, that's what will happen. Sounds crazy. So what does the Bible say to those who are rich? I want to read you this verse, a couple verses from 1 Timothy, a little book buried way back in the Bible, chapter 6. And this is a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul really really the first uh, kind of global missionary of the church, he wrote this letter to his protege, if you will, named Timothy. And Timothy was, he was leading a church, a new new church. Christianity was just beginning to spread around the world. And he was a young guy. So he was in this position where he was having to lead a lot of people who were older than him, a lot of people who were wealthier than him. He He was having to kind of lead up that way. And so Uh, Paul wrote this letter to basically coach him and instruct him, here's what you say to this group of people, here's how you teach this group of people to follow Christ, and and gave him some really good good input. What's funny to me when I read this, you'll see it here in just a second, is that he doesn't tell Timothy to to teach or suggest these things to rich people, twice says, command them, which sounds pretty bold to me, but, but that's the strength of the language that Paul is using with Timothy. So, In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, this is what Paul tells Timothy to do. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. I think most of us would say, even if we were rich, we'd say, I hope my hope's not in wealth. I mean, I have my hope in wealth. Well, that may be true, but then why does our appetite for more and more and more keep growing if we're not hoping that it will make us happy? And Paul says, Command them to avoid this pitfall. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but rather to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life Truly life. Let me ask you a question. This seems kind of strange to me. Why would Paul give this instruction only to rich people? Because it seems to me that everybody should be generous and willing to share, kind of regardless of what you have. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't we all be willing to share with others from whatever we have? Uh, but Paul gives this instruction specifically to rich people, and I had, had wondered why, and then I started to think about it and did a little bit of research. Did you know that proportionally, the wealthier a person is in America, the less they actually give charity. The poorest 20% of Americans actually give to charity, proportionally, a percentage of their income, 
They actually give to charity at a rate of three times that of the, 20, the wealthiest 20% in America. Now, the wealthiest 20%, they give more. It's a bigger dollar because they have so much more. But the wealthiest 20% of Americans give to charity just over 1% of their income. Now, they're not all greedy. There are some very generous, wealthy people out there. Uh, and thank goodness, or that statistic would be really bad. But in our society, the poorest 20% give to charity at three times the rate of the wealthiest 20%. I find that really interesting. Because most of us assume that if we ever became rich, we'd do very generous things. I mean, I assume that if I became rich, I would, I would be generous with it. I think almost everyone probably assumes that, but yet the statistics say something otherwise. And I think the problem is the simple fact that rich people struggle with discontentment. It's never enough. Most of us wouldn't consider ourselves rich, and yet the statistics say we're probably richer than we think that we are. But it's never quite enough never quite the level that we want to get to. That's what the evidence says. The more we have, the more we want. The evidence actually says that the more financial freedom you have, actually the more financial bondage that you'll live in, the more you'll want to acquire. The unique type of bondage, but I think that's why Paul gives these instructions to rich people. Not so that they'll just get rid of all their wealth and, and be poor, but so they can escape the bondage. And the truth, the reality for us is that we live in a very wealthy society, and I don't think that means we have to live in bondage to money. I think God wants us to be free from that. And so the Bible uses a couple of word pictures uh, that I really just want to kind of spend our, our last section of time together on. It uses a kind of couple of word pictures to describe different two different types of mentality about money. What a guy named Gene Apple calls a bag, me bag mentality and a basket mentality. I don't think we have to be hostage to it. So, so I just want to pull this all together by examining uh, the two, because I think that if we get our hearts right regarding money, if we get our minds right uh, regarding money, there's a lot of peace way to be had, and isn't that really what we're after in the first place? That's really the thing that we're pursuing, and so I think we can have that just by adjusting our, our view and our thought process. So Paul warns not to put our hope in wealth, financial security, because it inevitably is going to lead us to fear and discontentment. And I like his style because he doesn't just say, don't do this. He also says, here's a much better alternative. Do this. This will lead you to life. Um, he, gives, he gives the better alternative, and he says that God has given us what we need, but not just for survival, for our enjoyment. I think that's pretty cool that God wants to enjoy the things that we have. So consider the money bag. I'm kind of turned around here because in my mind the bag was on that side, and so forgive me. Consider the money bag. What is the function of the money bag? You know, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't just walk around the street with a money bag. Uh, you would certainly transport that under fairly high security, uh, as I did here, if it were actually full of money. Uh, the, purpose, the purpose of the money bag is basically to contain or protect the money, right? Uh, really, the idea with the money bag is input good, output bad. The function of the money bag is to just keep it in, protect what we have. And there's a passage of scripture uh, in Haggai 1. I'm sure that you all were just in that this morning. Uh, it's kind of buried in the middle there, uh, where the people, where God's people are kind of living with a bag mindset. And Haggai writes, and he describes what their life is like 
while they're living with this money bag mindset, trying to protect what they have. It's this season where God's people are, they're building a society, they're acquiring wealth, stability is starting to happen, uh, but they're really kind of neglecting God. So it might sound kind of familiar uh, to you because it's really similar to the time that we live in. This is what Haggai 1.6 says as it describes the situation God's people are in. It says, look at what is happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Actually, the word that's translated pockets there is actually the same word that would translate, Hebrew word that would translate into English as to be bag. Uh, Do you ever feel like you're putting your money in a pocket or a bag that's filled with holes, like, you know, you're just, you're sticking it in there, and you're like, oh, I'm getting ahead, and then, uh, you know, there's this little hole in here that it's supposed to fall out of when you do it, and then, bam, car breaks, money falls out, or kid wants to go to college. You're finally paying off the credit cards, and then all of a sudden, you have this medical bill that comes up, or you need a new set of tires. For us, we got hit with this in May, boom, $3,800, a new set of braces for junior. Stuff like that happens. All the time. You ever feel that way? And then like five years go by and you're like, you know, we're really not any farther ahead than we were back when we started this savings thing because unexpected expenses are going to happen almost as often as the expected ones. And sometimes it just feels like I'm just sticking this money in there and it's just going out the top as fast as it's going in in the bottom. The list of expenses doesn't ever end. And sometimes we get to where things are going fairly well so we start to be able to get bigger and better things, but guess what? They just come with bigger and better expenses. It's this vicious cycle. The cycle doesn't ever seem to have an end. And the bag mindset assumes that putting money in is good, taking it out is bad. And if I'm putting it in faster than I'm taking it out, then I'm in good shape. Then I'll have security. But here's what I find really strange about that. Maybe you've known some people like this. Uh, I currently know and have known several people in the past who reached a a time in life where they were well into what we might consider normal retirement years and actually had the resources to retire and maintain a one percenter's lifestyle, but they didn't do it simply because they were afraid they didn't have enough, because they were afraid that it wouldn't be enough for them to maintain what they currently had and really just ended up being motivated by fear. So let me ask you this question and think of a number. How much money, just a sum of money, how much money would you have to have so that you never worried about money again? What's that number for you so that I could just, if I had this amount of money, I know that I would just be set for the rest of my life. I'd never have to worry about it. I bet I can guess the number. I've been asking your spouse a few questions. I've been, uh, you know, doing some internet spying on you, and I think I know the number. I think the number is more than you currently have. I think whatever you have right now, it's not there. It's, it's whatever you have right now plus some. That's the number that you would have to have. I think that's maybe almost universally true uh, unless, you know, you have like 10 digits in your bank account. It's more than you currently have. So think about some biblical figures. There's a guy named Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Uh, I, I pity Judas in many ways because that's the one thing he's known for. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, I was curious about how much money that actually was. 
And uh, the current market value of silver is in the, you know, fluctuates day to day, but it's in the neighborhood of about $17. And so most people believe that these were like silver coins that were common in their day, probably weighed an ounce to two ounces. But let's just, let's just give Judas the benefit of the doubt. And let's say he got several pounds of silver for betraying Jesus. Well, at $17 an ounce, like we're still only talking about a few weeks' wages at a, at a minimum wage job. Like Judas didn't get a fortune for betraying Jesus. Not like he just retired in the Bahamas and nobody ever heard from him again. It was a relatively small amount of money, a useful amount, but still fairly small, not like life-altering. Why would he do something so extreme for such a small amount of money? Because what he had wasn't enough, and he saw the opportunity to get more. And it's really pretty unfortunate. It's a pretty extreme example, but, but that's what happened in Judas' case. He wanted more. And our reality is that we have a tendency to do something kind of similar. The biblical principle of the tithe, like I don't, I don't want to jump into that uh, today, but, but really, Bible describes the process of not, not giving God one-tenth of what we have, but rather returning 10% of the 100% that he's given us back to him. That's, that's the principle that the Bible talks about. And the truth for, for us is, we think, okay, well, if God's given me 100%, like 10%, you know, I still have 90, like why wouldn't I do that? Well, it's because the 90 is not enough. And the 100 actually probably isn't enough either, right? It's just never enough. It's fear about the future. So really, I guess if I'm honest with myself, and you can decide if, you wanna, if it's true for you, but I think if I'm honest with myself, when I am withholding from returning to God, I think what I'm really saying is I don't believe that God is my provider. I believe that kind of cognitively, but then when the rubber meets the road, uh, my financial behavior will tell me if I actually believe that. A, bind, a bag mindset has that person in bondage. They're, they're gripped by it. And so the solution to the bag mindset is what the Bible describes as a basket mindset. There are several analogies throughout the scripture that use, this, um, use the principle of the basket to describe our attitude towards finances. One of them is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He, God is describing how he will respond to a person who puts their trust in him, uh, who does life the way that he has prescribed. In Deuteronomy 28, 4, this is what God says he has promised to do to those who love him and follow him and, uh, and put their faith in him. He says, your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets will be, and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. Now, I don't think you have to live in an agrarian society to understand the idea that a full basket, a blessed basket, is good. An empty one or a not blessed one, a cursed one, is bad. And he uses that analogy. Well, then Jesus does the same thing. In Luke chapter 6, this is what he says to the crowd that he's teaching. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, so think about the imagery of the basket. It's really simple in Jesus' day. Agrarian society, farming made sense to them. Uh, this is what would happen. The landowners in their day would hire day laborers. We, we do this today. Of course, we have free flow of currency, but what they would do is they would give them a basket, and people would go out into the field, and they would fill the basket. And when it was full, they would carry it across the field and dump it in the cart or wherever they were stocking it up at. 
Now, they weren't dumb. I mean, they knew if I'm going to have to carry this basket across the field 60 times today, I don't want it to weigh 1,000 pounds. So they'd fill it up so it was half full or kind of full, whatever was manageable for them. And they'd go over and dump in the cart, and then they'd take it back across the field and fill it up again. But the agreement that was really common in their day for, uh, for their pay scale was that oftentimes the landowner would say, okay, at the end of the day, the last basket, that's yours. You get to keep that one. So let me ask you a question. Just crawl into the mindset of the day laborer. How are you going to fill up that last basket? You're going to fill it like my 12-year-old son would fill a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. I mean, you know, you put that thing up there, it's kind of full, you take a drink, slurp some off, you tap it a little bit, it gets the air bubbles out if you're really an expert, if you're like a pro, you tap it a little bit, you fill it up some more, so just right over the top. Then you put the cone on, right, the round lid, you fill it up all the way to the top, and if you're really good at it, you can fill it up so there's a little bubble sticking out, the little hole at the top of the cone, and when you put the straw in, it starts to run over, and you slurp it off. And that's when you know it's full. That's how, that is the appropriate way to fill a Slurpee. I think we can all agree. That's how they were going to fill the last basket. They were going to fill it up, and they were going to give it a little shake to make sure it's all laying in there flat, and push it down a little bit, put some more in, to the point where they had to walk carefully on their way home to keep from spilling it, because it was just as full as it could possibly be. Here's what's interesting. Jesus says, that's how God wants to deal with you. And what's interesting is he doesn't say, uh, you know, God just wants to give you kind of a full basket. God wants to make sure your basket's full. He doesn't say God wants to give you enough. He describes that God wants you actually to have an abundance. That's God's, that's God's desire. That's his promise for us. That's what Jesus teaches us. We work so hard to try and get enough, but Jesus is saying, listen, God wants you to have an abundance that's what God wants to give you. And I think the biggest difference between the two mindsets really comes down to a pretty, pretty simple principle. I think most, bag set, bag, most basket mindset people really have a full view of God that says, God is my provider. While bag mindset people just aren't quite there yet. Now, if you're like me, you've probably gone back and forth at various times in your life. I, you know, I'm, I don't think having a bag mindset makes you a bad person. I think it just makes you a person, uh, which is an okay thing to be, by the way. It happens to all of us. I think, I think bag mindset people are just a little bit different because they're not quite confident that God will be faithful to his promise to deal with me generously. Um, I think God will deal with me. I believe that, but I'm not quite sure that he'll deal with me generously. And so what happens when I'm, when I'm held hostage by this is that when I do act generously to someone else, it tends to be kind of out of duty, like it's the right thing to do, uh, or kind of out of guilt, like you know, God said I had to give a 10% or whatever. Uh, God said I had to help poor people. It tends to be kind of motivated by duty or guilt, whereas basket mindset people, they understand that they've, they've really, uh, that God can be trusted. And so they can demonstrate generosity by the way they live, because they understand that God will deal with them generously as well. And I get that we're not all natural born. None of us are natural born sharers. Uh, if you go downstairs right now, you'll find out. None of us are natural born sharers. But when you have a basket mindset, you have the opportunity to live Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, which I think is just a really, really useful, encouraging verse, uh, just plainly spelled out. This is what it says. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your crops. That's, that's our part. 
honor God with our wealth and the first fruits of our crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Listen, if you do this money thing God's way, his promise is that he will bless you. I'm not a subscriber to this prosperity gospel. Um, I think it's definitely goofy, and it's also um, greed in church clothes, in my opinion. So I'm not a subscriber to that. But I do think God has clearly spelled out his commitment in the scriptures. And so we're not going to delve into like practices and principles and all that is for some other time. But, but I just want to point out the fact that God has clearly spelled out for us that if we honor him with our resources, he fully intends to bless you. That's, that's something that's spelled out for us. And so step one, really the big idea for today, has nothing to do with a practice, uh, very minimal homework. Step one is the beginning of honoring God financially, of honoring God, returning to him what he's, uh, what he's blessed us with. The beginning of posturing ourselves to receive from God starts with viewing God as our provider. And so that's what I'm going to ask you to do this week. View God as your provider. God has provided generously for us. Do we view him that way? And the Bible does spell out some principles, but we'll get there. I don't want to start there because what happens is if you start with a number, then you can say, all right, I made the number, so God has to bless me. Or you can say, uh, I made the number, so now God can't ask me to be generous about anything else. It's not about that. It's about viewing God as your provider. And that's what I want to encourage you today. So if you're a person who's already got some principles in your life that you're practicing, I bet you can look back and you can encourage someone else with the knowledge that, you know what, I did honor God in this way and he did come through on his promises. Man, that's a phenomenal testimony. That says so much about how awesome God has been to you. But today, I don't want to focus on that. I just want to press you toward viewing God as your provider. Remember Paul's prescription to Timothy, last thing. He said, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Let's do that this week. Let's put our hope in God who is our provider. God, thanks for this group of people. So grateful that, uh, that we get to do life together. God, I pray that you would really give us your heart for the resources that you've blessed us with. Um, I pray you'd help us to see with a clear lens and not be, not be jaded and clouded by what other people have or uh, the fact that we do live in a society that has so much. God, I pray you'd just give us a clear view of that. Um, having a lot can be a heavy weight on our souls, God, and I just pray that you'd help us to really be free and help others to get there as well. So, God, I'm just so grateful for the way you've provided for us. God, I pray that you would uh, just lead each of us in our households into a season of abundance and blessing, God. I pray that would begin with helping us view you as our provider. In Jesus' name.